Now we intend to look this evening to a portion of our confession that begins a, a brief discussion concerning the government of the church and its oversight. That covers Articles 31, 30, or 30, 31, and 32. We're going to look at the very start of that this evening. But first I'd like to read with you from 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul's writing here to Timothy, a young minister who's likely in Ephesus at the time. And he's equipping him for the difficult work of, of ministering to, of guarding and guiding the church. And so there in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he's just given the qualifications for the elders and deacons who will be set over the church. And he warns Timothy. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths but rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have, we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Amen. Now, Article 30 of our Confession declares, We believe that this true church must be governed by that spiritual polity which our Lord has taught us in His Word. Namely, that there must be ministers or pastors to preach the Word of God and to administer the sacraments. Also, elders and deacons who together with the pastors form the council of the church, that by these means the true religion may be preserved and the true doctrine everywhere propagated. Likewise, transgressors punished and restrained by spiritual means, also that the poor and distressed may be relieved and comforted according to their necessities. By these means, everything will be carried on in the church with good order and decency when faithful men are chosen according to the rule prescribed by St. Paul in his epistle to Timothy. Amen. Beloved disciples, through our Lord Jesus Christ, our God is a God of order. He's a God of intentionality. And He does not leave His church to be governed by the whims of men. But you might not know that 
if you study the way the church is governed. If we look at the church today, we see a whole variety of ways in which the churches are governed, many of which are radically different than many others. For instance, we have the Episcopalians and the Anglicans who have a very ordered system of government using bishops and archbishops and a a distinct chain of command. It certainly heeds God's desire for everything to be done decently and in good order. However, if you talk to them, if you get to know them, you find out that tradition has as much or more to do with why they do what they do than Scripture. On the other end of the orderliness spectrum, we have the folks in the the Pentecostal and holiness tradition, where there's little sense of required order. They do have offices, but there are also boards and trustees and, frankly, whatever structures work. Nor is our tradition exempt from mixing and matching in church government. So often, we see Reformed churches trading principled polity for worldly ways. On paper, Reformed church government has much to commend it, but in practice, it's so tempting to trade principles for pragmatism. And it ought not to be so. The order and government of the church should not be a matter of human preference or culture or tradition or indifference. Because the church is the body of Christ. We're called to submit eagerly to our head and to believe that He knows what is best for us. The church is God's kingdom. And as such, we should be eager to obey and to seek the guidance of our King. The church is a heavenly family, expecting our needs to be met by our Father and therefore to be following after His ways. The church is the bride of Christ, whom He deeply loves, whom He purchased at the cost of His very lifeblood. Should we not seek in all things to be ordered according to His preferences? In such an important assembly, the order and practice by which we are governed cannot be unimportant or a mere afterthought. And so today our our confession leads us to begin considering how the church is governed. Today we're going to see why we have office bearers. And why God ordained the sort of church government that we have. Next week, Lord willing, we'll study in Article 31 how the church selects its office bearers and how God's people should receive those men. And then finally, in Article 32, we'll consider how those men who are called should actually govern the church. But first, we see that Christ has ordained an orderly government for His church. That's what we see in this article. Christ has ordained an orderly government for His church. And our first point in studying that matter is that God ordained a government committed to three distinct offices. See, God has not left us without instruction for governing His church. That's a claim that some folks make. They say, God has really given no distinct instruction so we can govern the church however we see fit, however works for us. That's not just what the liberals say, that's what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther was... Very principled when it came to doctrine. When it came to, especially this soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. that We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He was emphatic that the church must stand and fall on this. But when it came to how the church is governed, how it carries out its business, he really felt that that was a matter of secondary importance at best. 
Meanwhile, others say we need to be intentional. We need to be careful how we govern the church, but God doesn't give hard and fast rules. And to justify that, they point to the change in the development that we see in the church throughout the ages. There were different forms of government among God's people prior to Moses and during the age of Moses and during the time of the judges then the time of the kings and then after the exile. After Pentecost, we see that the early church was governed in a particular way and that kind of morphed and changed in the Middle Ages and then into the late Middle Ages and then during the time of the Reformation, there were all these changes. And so these folks say what's important is not how we govern the church, but the underlying principles that govern the governors. Right? We have to do everything in an orderly and just manner. We need to do it all in love and for the upbuilding of the saints. Beyond that, whatever works. But our forefathers, studying God's Word, parsing the instruction, particularly the Apostle Paul, in places like his letters to the Corinthians, and his letters to Timothy and Titus, they saw things quite differently. They recognized that God governed His people differently in different ages. But with regard to the ages recorded in Scripture, they pointed out that those different forms of government coincided with different eras of development among God's people. And the government that was carried out was that which was commanded and ordained by God. So it wasn't haphazard. It wasn't simply according to what worked. It was according to what God had commanded for that age. And after the apostolic age, to be true, to be sure, there were changes in church government, but they were of two sorts. Many of them were changes when God's people sought to incorporate worldly patterns into the church. It was deformation, right? It was accommodating the church to the world. And other changes, such as those we saw during the age of the Reformation, were returns to God's Word, seeking to govern the church according to what God has commanded, what God has shown us. However, in the times of faithfulness in the life of the church, both during biblical ages and after, in times when God's people were seeking to be faithful, the standard that determined how the church was governed was always God's Word. And the governments that resulted always had certain things in common, looked fairly similar to one another. Central to those faithful church governments has been a commitment to three offices. The three offices are minister, elder, and deacon. Now we'll see in just a little bit that there's some overlap. They share some common goals. However, the offices themselves, the calling of those men ordained to those offices, each is unique and each is necessary to the well-being of the church. So we need to consider those briefly tonight. We're going to talk in a couple weeks, Lord willing, about how, uh, how those are carried out. What some of the specifics that those men called to those different offices are called to do. But tonight we need to just see an overview, kind of a helicopter level of why God gives these three offices. The first is the office of minister. The office of minister is a, an office of proclamation which makes it roughly the equivalent of the Old Testament office of prophet. Now that's not strictly equivalent, since the minister, unlike the prophet, doesn't receive his word from direct inspiration. But it is a calling to proclaim to God's people today, just like back then, who God is and what God has done. What God has commanded and what He has forbidden. Who we are as God's people and what that means for the way that we live and 
for what we believe. That means that central to the calling of the minister is the preaching of the Word. And that doesn't begin here in the pulpit. It begins in daily living. We heard Paul admonish Timothy, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. It's only after that that he talks about proclamation because he understands that unless the man is preaching the truth of God's Word in his life, then what he says with his lips means nothing, right? Especially when we're talking to the youth. There is no one like a teenager who can sniff out hypocrisy. And that's a good thing. It holds us accountable. As ministers, we are called to preach the truth first of all by how we live and then to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And what's at the heart of that teaching? Verse 10, to have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior. It's to that end that we preach. It's to that end that we teach. By means of faithful preaching, says 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, God's people hear the very voice of their Savior. And 1 Peter 1 tells us that when they hear that voice of the Savior, that's how God forms faith within them and brings them to salvation. And it's not just what happens in the pulpit. It's also what happens in the sacraments. So often today we hear the call for appealing to all the senses. Right? We need to have PowerPoint. We need to have music. We need to have dance. We need to have bands. Why? So we can appeal to all the senses. God created us. He knows the need that we have to to hear and to learn visually and, and tactically. And so He gives us the Lord's Supper. And He gives us baptism. Because in those sacraments, the Gospel is proclaimed. Not everything from the Bible is proclaimed visually, but the heart of what the Bible shows us. How Christ cleanses us from our sin so that we can be restored to God. How Christ was broken and His blood was poured out. And also that we can be fed unto eternal life and united as one body before Him. So the minister proclaims God's Word, he displays God's Word, and he also teaches. Paul reminded the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 20, how he preached publicly and from house to house, and he commended the same to us. And so the minister, he he not only proclaims publicly here, but he, he catechizes to particular groups, and he ministers to those individuals who are in need. But always he's bringing God's Word. He's explaining to them the truth about who God is and and how He calls us to respond. And then there's the elder. Their essential duty is ruling, making them roughly equivalent to the Old Testament kings. Now, of course, there are differences. The, The kingdom of Christ is a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. It concerns matters primarily of the heart and soul, not of life in the civil realm. But the essence is the same. He's to be a a leader who serves. In carrying that duty out, the elder pours himself out for the church in order to shepherd them. Paul urged, admonished the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. That means the elder, like a good shepherd, must constantly be watching the sheep whom God loves, inquiring to see if they're being spiritually nourished, 
holding them accountable to living for and serving the Lord, discipling them, guiding them in the way that is good, in the way that is helpful for them, comforting when, when they're injured, building up and restoring. It's the work of a, a shepherd, of a servant, one who pours himself out for the well-being of Christ's lambs. And yet there's also an aspect of inspection and enforcement as those who are servants of the king. Not only are they shepherds, they're governors sent by the king. Jesus said we're to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, that's how we bring them in, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So the elders must ensure that the church is being faithfully taught what their calling is, what their duty is to live before the Lord. And when they depart from that way, when they rebel against the king, calling them back, admonishing them, urging them to live as servants of the true king. They're to ensure purity of life. Doctrine, if it's good doctrine, if it's true doctrine, will produce a holy life. But in their sin, men strive to produce bad fruit, the fruit of sin. And so the elders are called to root that out and to lead the people in the way of good fruit. We can see then why elders are called to be good fathers. 1 Timothy 3, verse 5 says, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He, tra he trains up men to be good elders by giving them children who challenge them to guide and lead and disciple their children in the way of godliness and teaching them how to be patient when they're slow to learn, slow to obey. At the same time, the elder, like the minister, is called to lead by example. That's why Paul emphasizes the godly character an elder is to have. He cannot lead others into godly living if he's not striving after godly living himself. And along with all that, the elder is to be a protector of God's people. Paul urges that in Acts 20. He warns that enemies will arise against the church from without, and even from among your own selves, some will arise to lead them astray. And so he says, you need to be guarding them night and day. He says in Titus 1 that the elders are to be able to refute those who speak the, the falsehood, who, who seek to lead people astray. They need to protect God's people. And then there's the office of the deacon. An office of serving. There's been lots of discussion among folks who study ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. Is the deacon properly called the inheritor of the office of the priest? Because after all, we don't bring burnt offerings anymore. We don't slaughter goats and lambs and bulls to worship the Lord. But, what we do bring is the offering of ourselves. What we do bring is the offering of a believing life. And it's that which the deacon sets before God's people. The deacon brings before God's people that demonstration by their own example of what it means to serve the Lord using the gifts that have been entrusted to them and the gifts that have been entrusted to the church in order to meet the needs of those who are hurting, of those who are weak, of those who are struggling. And then the deacons together, they look at the gifts of the church 
And they say, how could those gifts be used in serving the needs that arise among us? And they help God's people to follow after them in serving with the gifts given to them. And at the same time, that purpose that's laid out so beautifully in Acts 6 is theirs. In Acts 6, the apostles were basically serving as elders and deacons and ministers all in one. And some of the physical needs of the church were being neglected because they couldn't preach and teach and disciple and spend time in prayer and still meet those physical needs. And so they ordained deacons to take care of those physical needs, to take care of of meeting God's people where they were so that they could focus on teaching and praying. And the deacons do so today. That's why they care for our building. That's why they care for our physical grounds and pay our bills so that the elders and the ministers don't have to be distracted by that and they can focus on teaching the people, shepherding the people. And along with these duties, all three offices share one particular calling in common, and that's the calling to prayer. You see, these offices are weighty. Kids, I want you to remember this. There is not a man in this church who in and of himself is suited to be a minister or an elder or a deacon. Every one of us, if we understand the weightiness of this, these callings, will shrink back from serving in these ways, from bearing these authorities. And so when God calls us into these offices, which we'll talk about next week, how that happens, it's God who has to equip us and God who has to use us. And that means that our first and most important duty is to seek God, to ask for His blessing, to ask for His guidance, to ask for His success, because unless He equips us and unless He ordains to use us, everything we do will be for nothing. In fact, all we'll be able to do is make things worse. So for the sake of the church and for the glory of God, the elders and the deacons and the ministers alike must saturate their service with prayer, pleading with God to use them. So that's the three offices to which we're committed. Now there's two other things we need to take note of. Both of them are brief, but both of them are important. The first is we need to ask, what is the goal toward which these offices aim? And then after that, who is it that ought to fulfill these offices? So looking at that first question, what is the goal toward which the offices aim? We find our second point. It's a government concerned with the church's diverse needs. So each of these offices is unique. There's overlap, there's cooperation, and yet the offices themselves are vastly different. Nonetheless, they work together. They complement each other. And they do so for building up the church. Our confession, I think, wisely names four particular duties that the offices cooperate in fulfilling. And there's a fifth one that's implied. The first is that by these means, the true religion may be preserved. The true religion, the biblical religion. That's what we find summarized in our confession and our catechism and our canons. It's the worship of God established on faith in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. To preserve this is not possible by human means. But it is possible when God uses the people He has called and He blesses their service. Paul reminded us in 1 Timothy 4, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, 
Later, in his next book, Paul wrote, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The power of deceitful spirits and of ear-pleasing preachers is immense. But God has equipped His church with these three offices in order to preserve and propagate or spread the true religion. And so ministers are called, as we heard in our scripture reading, to preach and teach and set an example, equipping the church to know what is true and discern what is false, enabling the church to resist that which is a lie, and encouraging God's people to stand firm on the truth of Christ. Likewise, elders are called, according to Titus 1, to refute those who teach a lie, to disciple and to hold accountable the people of God, and to build up and encourage those who are weak. And the deacons, they're to remove distraction from the elders and the, the ministers so that they can do that work faithfully. And at the same time, they're to make the religion of the true religion of Christ visible by visiting elders and or, uh, widows and orphans in their time of need, by meeting the needs of those who are weak and downtrodden, visibly demonstrating the mercy of Christ that lies at the heart of the gospel. So that's the first goal, that the true religion may be preserved. The second is that true doctrine may be everywhere propagated or spread. This lies at the heart, obviously, of the minister's calling. In season and out, ministers are called to declare and defend the truth of God. We're called not only to teach the gospel, but according to Ephesians 4, to teach the saints to do likewise. And the elders have a role in that. That's why they are involved in the catechizing of youth and the discipling of, of those who are young in the faith. That's why they're called to set an example for the saints of the lifestyle that the gospel will bring forth. It's part of their calling to ensure that the truth is being proclaimed and that falsehood is not. And so every sermon I preach, the elders are paying attention to make sure that the truth is being proclaimed and not something false. And if something false is being proclaimed, they're to stop that. right? And the deacons, they have a role in this. Ensuring that the needs of the minister and of missionaries and missionary works and outreaches are provided for. Using the offerings of God's people in a way that will spread and propagate the truth. So we defend the true gospel or the true doctrine. We propagate it. We spread it. And then the third goal, that transgressors may be punished and restrained by spiritual means. Here the elders take the lead. Part of the reason that they do family visits is to encourage the people from house to house individually, but also when we spend time in the houses of God's people. We get to see them, the way they interact, the things that really mean a lot to them, the struggles that they have. And they can encourage them in the midst of those struggles. And if in any way they're going astray, they can draw them back. And when they see that someone is going far astray, well, they can go and they can visit them and they can show them from God's Word and they can pray with them for the help of the Spirit so that they can bring them back into the sheepfold, as it were. And if they won't, 
then they can admonish them and discipline them so that they can see the cost of their persistent sin. They can see the cost of going astray from Christ. And the ministers do the same with their preaching. See, the word that we preach is not only to be the word of grace, it's also to be the word of warning. That if we depart from the truth, if we depart from the gospel, we depart from Christ and from life and from hope and from eternal goodness. And so too the deacons, as they meet the needs of those who are suffering, they're called to lead them to embrace not just the, the bread that they give them, but the bread of life. And if their, their struggle, their need is brought about by their sin and by their disobedience, they're called to point that out to them and help them to see that, that Christ wants us to live in a way that's responsible and holy and filled with faith. And that leads to the fourth goal, that the poor and distressed may be relieved and comforted according to their needs. The deacons, they're not only called to use the gifts that God's people give in benevolently meeting the needs of the people that are lacking, but they're called to lead us, all of us, in seeing how we're to use our gifts and we're to use our abundance in blessing those who are in need. They bring God's word of hope to those whose hardship has softened their hearts. Likewise, the ministers, we teach the church its calling to show the love of Christ and the mercy of the Lord. And the elders, as they go from house to house, they're to comfort those who are suffering, but also to urge them. Are you using your gifts in a way that's blessing the people around you? Are you seeking out ways to serve the people that are in need? And then there's a fifth goal. And that fifth goal is that God might be glorified in and through His church. In all of these duties of the office bearers, the goal, the goal is not that we check off a list of things to do. It's certainly not that we might earn anything in God's sight. It's not that we might make ourselves feel good. The goal is that God would be glorified. When the truth is proclaimed and passed on from generation to generation to generation about who God is and what He's done and how He's blessed us. When new generations and new people from the community come to trust in the Lord, when people are drawn back from their sin and into the grace of Christ, when those who are brought low by their physical circumstances are lifted up and encouraged through the help and the mercy of Christ through His people, that all glorifies God. And so it's my calling to teach you that that's your proper response, to glorify God, to give Him praise, to give Him thanks. It's the elders calling when they go to your house to visit, to remind you that that's your duty, that worship isn't just something that we must do or that we do out of tradition. It's the greatest purpose we could have. It's the highlight of our existence. And the, and the deacons, oh, when they bring the mercy of Christ, when they encourage God's people through their uh, through their admonishment and through their example to serve. They're encouraging us to glorify God even in the sight of the world. And so all of this, when the elders and the deacons and the ministers are working together, we're striving together to bring glory to God through His church. But there's one last thing we need to see here. See, this church government of which we've been speaking, it's not magic. It's not a recipe, it's not a guaranteed formula that will work regardless of who seeks to do it or of how they try to implement it. Paul warns in 
1 Timothy 5, verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. In other words, don't ordain men rashly. Because God will not use just anyone we ordain in order to fulfill these glorious purposes in the church or to bring glory unto Him. In fact, if we ordain someone who's not actually called of God, then we'll actually harm the church. And so our final point, and we're going to explore this more later, but we need to note it here, is that this government which Christ has ordained for His church is a government carried out by the Lord's faithful disciples. Throughout the Scripture we've looked at this evening, especially in 1 Timothy 4, there's an emphasis on the need of the leaders among God's people to be godly. God intends to use the deacons, the elders, the ministers of the church as His representatives. The ministers must proclaim His word, His will, His comfort, His rebuke. The elders shepherd by exercising the authority of Christ Himself. The deacons serve so as to reveal the love and the mercy of Christ. But God will not use for such a great end those who don't know Him, those who don't love Him, those who don't serve Him themselves. Instead, we see in all of these passages that the men God uses to reconcile other men to Himself are men who already know Him. We do not serve because we are so accomplished. We do not serve because we are so qualified. But we do serve the elders and the deacons and the ministers. We do serve as those who are leading the needy to the one who has met their own need as the ones who were born in darkness and have found the light, who are calling men out of the darkness to that light that has filled them. But unless we've gone to the light, unless we know the provision of our Savior, we can't lead others there, can we? Now note well, it's not the worthiness of men that we're seeking. It's the work of God in them that we need to see. It's the evidence that they belong to Christ, that they are equipped by Christ, that qualifies them to serve Christ. Now we're going to look more at that next time as we consider the truth summarized in Article 31. But for now, note well how important it is that God has spelled out not the church in its tradition, not experts at the seminaries, but God has spelled out the qualifications for the offices of His church. He's not left us the freedom to ordain just anyone. He's not given us the option of ensuring that everyone gets their turn. The men whom we are called to ordain are the men whom God is equipping and God is calling and God is singling out before the church as the ones whom He would have us ordain. And when we do that, we can be confident that He will use them and they can be confident, and boy, they need that confidence, that even though they're weak, even though they're flawed, God will employ them as instruments in His hand. And that's what we need. Folks, in all of this, what we need to remember is that it's not the elders who make the church. And it's not the deacons 
who make the difference. And it's certainly not the ministers who define the church. It's Christ. And if Christ is at the heart, is living within each of those office bearers, if it's Him whom they are seeking to serve through His Word according to His purposes, then the people of God will be gathered. The faith of God's people will be built up. The kingdom will make itself known and the Lord will be glorified. And it won't be because of this elder or that. It won't be because of those diligent deacons or that amazing minister. It's not because of us. It's because of Christ. And so we can give Him the glory that He deserves. Amen? So let's pray that He would work in and through these office bearers and that He would continue to raise up the office bearers we need. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You've not left it up to us to discern, to determine for ourselves how the church should be governed or by whom or in what way. But You have given us instruction. You have guided us in the way that we should go. And You have promised to work through those men whom You have set over us. Continue to work through them. Continue to build your church. Continue to lead us to bring you glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.